0: Hello. On behalf of CME Outfitters, I would like to thank you for joining us for part two of this podcast series focused on improving perioperative care, entitled Best Practices in Neuromuscular Monitoring, a Focus on 2023 ASA Guidelines. Today's activity is supported by an educational grant from Merck, Sharp, and Dome Corporation. I'm Dr. Ross Renew. I'm an associate professor of anesthesiology at Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and Science, and the Vice Chair of Research for my Department of Anesthesiology and Perioperative Medicine at Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. I'm really happy to be joined today by Dr. Drew Riddle. Dr. Riddle, tell us a little bit about your practice.
1: Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Um, I'm Drew Riddle. I'm a nurse anesthetist and practice in Fort Worth, Texas, in the Baylor Scott & White Healthcare System. Uh, We're in a large community hospital uh, where we take care of just about every type of patient aside from uh, the higher risk pediatrics. We have a tertiary care pediatric facility in town. But beyond that, it's, it's really a uh, all comers that walk in the door. We're uh, not a specialist practice so much as um, anybody who's needing anesthesia services also had the opportunity to serve in a capacity as faculty at the TCU School of Nurse Anesthesia here in Fort Worth, where I teach uh, both clinical and didactic um, anesthesia content. So great to be here.
0: Great. Thanks for coming. Excited about our conversation, and I'm excited about talking about something that I think has real-world implications, can
1: significantly
0: impact patient care, and that is trying to implement optimal neuromuscular blockade management. Our learning objective today is to try to help give some information and insight in how to incorporate best practices in the utilization of quantitative TOF monitoring of neuromuscular blockade, particularly in the context of new ASA guidelines that were released this year. During the course of today's podcast, we may be discussing some off-label uses of medications and monitoring. Drew, I want to start by asking you a question um, about some, some background and terminology. I, I know that we've had conversations before, and when, when you look through the literature, you see that we're kind of all over the place in how we describe various terms. And in a previous podcast that we opened, uh, I asked uh, Deb Falk to define the different ways we assess uh, level of blockade. But I'm curious to, if, if you could give us a little overview on how you would describe the level of blockade.
1: Yeah, you know, it's a great question because there is a a lot of um, somewhat ambiguity uh, amongst clinicians, and and a lot of us toss these terms around deep and moderate and shallow and minimal, but I think it's really important that we're all on the same sheet of music in terms of what we're talking about with, with these blockades. So using... Uh, the ASA guidelines as sort of the, the basis using the, uh, the references that the team at ASA, uh, put together when they, when they published the guidelines. Let's start sort of at the, at the, the deepest level or, or most complete neuromuscular blockade and go back to com- someone who's completely recovered. So if we think about that, it, we're always on that continuum, right? And patients can, um, can change where they are on this scale pretty pretty quickly based just on a time constant, even without pharmacologic intervention. But complete blockade is a patient with a post-titanic count of zero. What, what does that mean? Well, you, you have a, a nerve stimulator or a quantitative monitor. You uh, administer a train of four. There's zero response. You administer your uh, tetany and uh, post-titanic count. There is no activity at all there is something called deep neuromuscular blockade. And deep is considered a post-tetanic count of at least one, uh, but a train of four account count of zero. So someone who doesn't have access to quantitative monitoring, uh, if you're using a peripheral nerve stimulator, you would see uh, zero twitches when you hit your train of four button on your, on your machine, but at least one count, one twitch post, uh, post-tetany. Moderate neuromuscular blockade is considered a train of four count of anywhere between 1 and 3 whether you're using quantitative monitor or or your your more qualitative a peripheral nerve stimulator now there's a little bit of confusion um around the differences between shallow or minimal and the definitions are somewhat similar and so sometimes these are used interchangeably but when we think of shallow or minimal neuromuscular blockade well, that clinically looks like um, a count, a train of four count of four. So you click the button, train of four, you see four twitches, but you do see fade that's present. What does is, what is fade mean? Meaning that the first twitch is stronger uh, than, the, than the last twitch. We have some degree of, of fade that's developing. And where quantitative monitoring comes in now is we begin to see a difference in that first to last twitch and a quantitative monitor can give us a ratio of a an, an assessment of the amplitude or the strength of one twitch compared to the first twitch compared to the last twitch. And so we see a train of four ratio when we have shallow neuromuscular blockade of less than 0.4. Minimal neuromuscular blockade is a train of four ratio of 0.4 to 0.9. And then finally, I think maybe – most importantly, in this whole "how are we defining things" conversation, is around acceptable recovery, and it's interesting to note that with qualitative monitoring, we really can't determine this. It does require quantitative monitoring um, to see a train of four ratio of at least ninety percent or point nine. Um, it, you know, we we in clinical practice, if we're not using quantitative monitoring, we we do the best we can with our with our uh, peripheral nerve stimulator, um, you know, we know that certainly clinical uh, assessment alone is not, not adequate there. So I know there's a lot of information and a long answer to a really short question, but um, hopefully that gets us all at least on the same, same sheet of music as we move forward. Cause we will probably be using these terms somewhat interchangeably um, in practice and we need to be clear on where we are on, on all of this. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, I,
0: I view that answer and your discussion there is really the foundation of, of our future conversation and, not just uh, during this podcast, but when it's important as a, as a technique to communicate important clinical information uh, as we're taking care of our patients. So, you know, I think about when we transfer care to the ICU in a patient who may, may, may be still intubated and um, being able to give them a consistent, reliable definition of their current level of neuromuscular blockade, I think it's going to be really important, particularly in a patient that uh, is maybe uh, just had undergone surgery and they're going to try to extubate and wake up sooner. Uh, I think it's important when we transfer care to our colleagues, too, you know, if someone's coming into our room to give us a break or, you know, transitioning off uh, a case and, and, and completely transitioning care, it's nice to be able to use clear uh nomenclature that we can all agree upon. Um so there's no ambiguity in, in what's really important to clinical information and has the potential, um, you know, as in anesthesia and anesthesia providers, we have the opportunity to screw this up um pretty easily and so making sure that we're at least using the same verbiage is is critical too. And I think that there's been a lot of issues with coming to terms with these terminology uh, because, you know, one of it is researchers have used various terms. And when you go through their method sections, you see it's kind of all over the place. But, you know, our definition of recovery even changed. Uh, I can recall looking at papers from 10, 20 years ago when they talked about a TOF ratio of 07 uh, as being adequate recovery, and, you know, most recently, uh our, our definition for adequate recovery is a train of four ratio greater than 0.9 at the hand or the thumb uh, measuring the response of adductor pollicis, and, you know, there's good literature that patients in that 0.7 to 0.9, while you might think it's kind of academic, and does that really matter, um, there's evidence that there's still oropharyngeal dysfunction, and our patients are at re- risk of having aspiration events um, when they're that uh, at those shallow or minimal levels of blockade that you mentioned. And so I think it's, it's really important that we're consistent with that and kind of have some context into how these, these terminology came about. Um, so the big exciting information this year coming out, uh, and, uh, from the ASA on publishing guidelines on neuromuscular blockade management, you know, I'll, uh, ask for your thoughts, uh, Drew on this, but I'll say that it's, it's for me, it's been a long time coming. And I've been waiting for it and, uh, I've heard whispers of it, but it's, it's neat to finally see it come out. Um, what's your take on, on these guidelines that were published?
1: Yeah. It, I, I agree with you that it, you know, the whispers have been out there for quite some time that this is, that the, these <laughs> guidelines were coming and, and the group was working on them. Um, you know, anesthesia care is. Synonymous with neuromuscular blockade. You know, not every single patient, of course, is, is requires neuromuscular blockade, but probably more than any other uh, discipline within the healthcare space, this is this is in our wheelhouse. This is our uh, expertise in not just managing patients' neuromuscular blockade, but maybe equally, at least equally, if not more importantly, as ensuring appropriate recovery from neuromuscular blockade. Look, we we're chemically paralyzing people. And we have a responsibility not just to to manage that intraoperatively really well, but but ensure that we are appropriately antagonizing or reversing that chemical paralysis when it's appropriate for the for the care of our patients. So my, my gut react or my initial kind of reaction to this was finally, um, and and also I feel like these guidelines are some of the stronger recommendations related to management of neuromuscular blockade. It is a high risk, incredibly dangerous endeavor because we are, we are chemically paralyzing folks. And, uh, you know, you look at clinical practice guidelines, whether it's in anesthesia or, you know, pre-op, uh, perioperative risk assessment, et cetera. Quite frankly, sometimes guidelines are sort of, well, this is lovely information to know, but it doesn't really Directly impact my practice and, and I would say these guidelines are the contrary to that. they directly impact what I do and, and the way I approach my care and, and i would I would assert that we all should really um, take a look at them if you haven't, if you haven't read them yet um, they 're freely available. Go out, re- read them, uh, understand the implications because the the science is is fairly robust. Uh, that underpin these these recommendations, and unlike some other guidelines these these have the opportunity to significantly change uh, outcomes in a positive way for our patients
0: yeah I completely agree with you, and we need to own this as a specialty, like you said that the management of these drugs these are our drugs they 'll trickle in in other um, circumstances, but primarily this is these are anesthesia drugs. You know, the difference between a poison and a drug is really just the level of competence of the provider administering the, the drug. And these drugs were originally discovered as you know the, the curare in the, in the rainforest, the poison tip darts that uh, the locals used, um, and you know, certainly an understanding of the, the potency and complications associated with it. Um, uh, Dr. Beecher's landmark original study showing the increased complications when using curare uh, in the, uh, uh perioperative period has been something that's kind of flagged the importance of having good, good neuromuscular blockade management. And unfortunately, we still are, seem to be struggling with it as a specialty. I also like to think about these ASA guidelines in the context of other societal guidelines. Um, you know, the ECAIS, the European Society of Anesthesia and Intensive Care came out with their guidelines the summer preceding this one. Uh, and they're analogous to these ASA guidelines also. Uh, most major societies that have put out guidelines say, hey, you need to be using a quantitative monitoring. Uh, you need to use a quantitative monitor. Uh, Sugambidex is the only option if you're trying to reverse deep or moderate levels of blockade. Um, and uh, I think the I didn't see any surprises in the guidelines when they were published, and I, I commend uh, the ASA for their efforts. And I've had conversations with a number of the authors on that and it, it was neat to get some insight into, into the work and the, uh, how serious they took this matter. And, um, you know, the level of evidence is strong. I think all, all the level of evidence is strong except for one of the guidelines and that's the role for neostigmine at reversing minimal levels of blockade. So um, yep. they did their due diligence. There's robust literature.
1: So and, what, and my, what do you... <laughs> one of my other worlds is, um, I, I have the opportunity to co-chair the Cochrane network here in the U S. And so. Part of guideline development and understanding strength of evidence in that process is something that that I feel really um really both comfortable discussing and and confident in and i I would agree with you um ross i think the 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 group did a really good job from a from a this is a little technical but from the methodology of how the recommendations even came to be which which i think for me then as a clinician, someone who hopefully is going to use these in my in my clinical practice i have uh, I have confidence in, in what, what the recommendations are and, and uh, how they might apply, you know, kind of across the spectrum of, of patients undergoing anesthesia. This is not a, oh, well, there's only a small subset of super high risk patients or only in this subset of surgical types of patients, but rather this is anyone who receives neuromuscular blockade re- regardless of pathophysiology risk, uh, practice setting even. So, um, I think they, I agree with you. They did a really nice job with, with them.
0: Um, did you find any surprises or things that you thought they may have left uh, that that were not addressed? Something they might have omitted or left out? It,
1: no, other than there, there is there is perhaps a little bit less of a recognition that quantitative monitoring may not be as ubiquitous across non-academic medical centers across the U.S. than than perhaps is realized and. So look at monitoring in operating rooms over my twenty-something years in, in anesthesia. And I I dare say the OR, the day I went in my for my first anesthetic looks very different than it does today. And I think we'll see, you know, massive rollout of quantitative monitoring. But but there's a lot of really large um fairly complex health systems that, that uh that don't have quantitative monitoring available. And and so um I I think the Authors did a a nice job, but perhaps could have called out a little bit better in the absence of quantitative monitoring. Sort of here's here's where we think you need to be, um, rather than just perhaps relying on at least in the bullet point forms. Um, you know, here here are here's the train of four ratio because we we know the data uh, are are really clear. We we can't determine a train of four ratio without the assistance of of some sort of Uh, you know, real complex technology, well not super complex technology, but without the technology to do so. Um, the other piece that in my mind, I think I I would say that it surprised me, but in a, in a good way is that, um, really Sigamidex versus neostigmine, they were, they were very front and center about the, the efficacy of, of both of those drugs. Um, and perhaps, you know, we often see clinical practice guidelines that speak to, Either classes of drugs or speak in general terms about the management, but not really calling out in, in particular, um, uh, you know, individual drugs. And in, and in this case, you know, the, the data underpins exactly what they said, which is there's probably little, if any use of neostigmine, perhaps except when we are trying to reverse minimal neuromuscular blockade or obviously we can't use, uh, Sigamidex like with cisatracurium or, or atracurium. So.
0: You mentioned the evidence for the different antagonists and I would, um, alert our uh, audience to, uh, an, an article that I'm sure you're familiar with with comparing adverse events associated with Sugamidex and Neostigmine. I know that that was heavily cited in the guidelines as well, um, when they were developing, uh, developing them. And so they, they, uh, really did look at, you know, a vast array of literature that's been mounting and, and something that, uh, folks interested in this topic have been been sharing and, and kind of shouting from the rooftops for years, hey, we can, we can do better with this. And there, this, this isn't just my opinion. This is an evidence based uh, approach to, to handling this. I want to touch on one of the things that you mentioned uh, with one of the shortcomings of the guideline. And that, that is the applicability to the provider in a practice that doesn't have access to objective and quantitative monitoring. And I think that. You're touching, you you touched on something that was probably the biggest barrier, the biggest deterrent for getting guidelines of this manner, um, uh, approved and through. I know that, um, you know, the ASA is, does not represent just academic anesthesiologists. It represents folks in rural settings. It represents, uh, anesthesia providers throughout the country in a variety of, of environments and, um, some of the, conversations I've had with the authors of this point to this as being the biggest concern is not alienating and leaving behind the providers that don't have access to uh, quantitative monitoring and so they weighed that versus well we need we have to do the best thing for the patient and I know that lots of conversations were had about this and the biggest concern being that um, you know if we have guidelines now for the anesthesia clinician who does not have, Access to monitoring, are we exposing them to medical legal concerns in the face of, of new guidelines? And ultimately, uh, you know, that the, the driving force for developing these guidelines, you know, according to the committee and, and what they wanted to get done is look, we, we have the evidence. It's, it's apparent. Um, quantitative monitoring is the only consistent way to determine adequate recovery. So we're going to go for it. I commend them for going for it with the, with these guidelines where they say anytime you're giving a neuromuscular blocking agent, you need to. And and hopefully this is one of the the motivators for folks in our audience and for people interested in neuromuscular blockade to to explore some of these guidelines. I know that you, you shouldn't feel alone if you're listening to this right now and think, oh gosh, I'd, we just have like one peripheral nerve stimulator in my practice. I, now I've got to learn something new. You're not alone in that thought. I. I Talk to people across the country, and implementing, introducing these guidelines is uh, something that many folks are having to undertake and incorporate, and, and a challenge that, that everyone's uh, trying to address um, as they try to get up to speed with some of these guidelines. And um, it's something that's going to be interesting to see, and uh, it really gets speaks into uh, implementation science now as well, we start thinking about what are factors to it that impact human behavior and learning new techniques. Um, what kind of barriers do you think you guys might see in, in your group as you try to uh, implement monitoring or, or practices that you're familiar with?
1: Well, I, yeah, I mean, you bring up a great point. I'm in a large um, a large community hospital, and we don't have quantitative monitoring. And so uh, to me, while I see that as, um, uh, you know, maybe maybe something in my practice we need to change, I see the guidelines as the evidence to go to the facility and say this is something that's critically important. We now have uh really clear data although it's been mounting. Now we have the definitive statement in uh application of this, you know, ac- across across the places where anesthesia is delivered in our facility. And so I do applaud. I agree with you. I applaud the uh boldness of the group to, to make the call because we can't hide we can't hide the evidence or bury the evidence if the evidence is there we need to bring it forward and make the guidelines ap- appropriate to the evidence and then um those of us that are fighting the fight of uh well gosh how do we how do we implement this well the guidelines help us to make that argument for our facilities you know the the, the other aspect of this really has to do with um you know Guidelines are great. You can hang them on a wall. You can put them up at the, you know, in the break room and everybody can take a look at them. But, but changing provider practice, especially when provider practice may be deeply rooted in a culture of safety. You know, let's, let's be real. Anesthesia is incredibly safe. It's safer today than it was, you know, a couple decades ago, not to imply that it was unsafe a couple decades ago. And so, I think sometimes providers want to see really substantial changes and not perhaps incremental changes when a new guideline is brought out. And um, I, I think we need to recognize we're doing a decent job at neuromuscular monitoring, likely, you know, here in 2023. We probably can always do a bit better. And and these guidelines, as as I see the implementation, really allow me to go from Good to great or better to best in, in my practice. And so I would, I would encourage our listeners, if you're, if you're in that situation, I don't have access to quantitative monitoring. Maybe I, maybe I have Sigamodex, but I just have one or two vials sitting in the, in the, you know, in the pharmacy area only if I get into a really bad, bad trouble, but routine use of this drug is either not allowed in my facility because of you know, uh formulary concerns or or access, et cetera. Um, that that you begin to use these guidelines to educate other decision makers to help you come into what will become best practice as opposed to just good or okay enough practice. Yeah, and I
0: I think that's gonna be the the obstacle is you know, we are certainly practicing in an era of um, trying to be fiscally responsible and making uh, good economic choices um, for our institutions as we try to, you know, improve patient safety, but not at the not at great expense. You know, the, the bottom line is, you know, we're we're trying to practice as, as uh, cost effective as possible um, without compromising patient safety. And I, I I've heard this conversation before about uh, buying a new buying new equipment has some upfront cost for sure. And when you start comparing different monitoring modalities, some of these- uh devices have disposables that can add some cost as well um but uh it's it's you can't it's tough to put a price on uh unexpected outcomes related to residual weakness. There are certainly some models that are out there some some publications that have demonstrated you know the cost of an unexpected i c u stay the cost of Um, an unanticipated uh, aspiration pneumonia that perhaps prolongs a hospital length of stay. And so there have been some efforts to try to quantify the impact of the financial impact of inappropriate neuromuscular blockade management and using these, this information, I think can help you when you go to your, um, your your pharmacy, your uh, hospital committees, your administrative committees that would ultimately have the the say in uh, obtaining these devices. Um, But the other thing that you touched on that I think could really have an impact on empowering you to have this conversation and say, Hey, well we want to get quantitative monitoring is I think you can have more targeted, uh, approach use appropriate administration of one of the most expensive drugs on our, on our anesthesia cart. And that is Sugamidex. It's, you know, depending on your hospital contract around $100 a hundred dollars for a 200 milligram vial, um, we, uh, you, my, my practice, we, which we have unrestricted Sugamidex use um, and uh, objective quantitative monitoring, we use the monitoring to confirm that our Sugamidex is at a, an appropriate effect. Um, there's the, uh, an emerging idea that you can titrate Sugamidex, um, and really you can only do that with a quantitative monitoring. So it may have Sugamidex sparing effects. Uh, and by giving more appropriate, precise dosing of C-Gamidex. Um and I, I would use that uh, when I'm having that conversation with my uh, decision makers about uh, buying new equipment as
1: well. Yeah, I I, I agree. I also think there's um, you know this this whole idea of why do I even need these guidelines to begin with? I'll just I'll just deeply paralyze everyone. I've got this great drug. It can reverse patients from you know this this whole continuum of block of blockade, and and I would I would call out to to folks that are doing that, that that's not best practice. Uh, And and quite frankly, it's probably a little bit lazy. And we need to, we need to, our patients deserve better. And so appropriate use and planning appropriate use of neuromuscular blocking agents is equally as important to appropriate use and planning for antagonism of those neuromuscular blocking agents. And, um, you know, we're, we're well positioned to be in the, in the, in the place to drive that from a pharmaco-economic perspective. You're exactly right. The the upfront cost of the monitor may far be offset by uh, the either Sigamidex sparing or uh, a, m- appropriate use of, of the neuromuscular blocking agents to begin with. I, I also would point out to some folks, you actually may have quantitative monitoring capabilities that were in your uh, whatever your monitoring system you you have you you just don't have the the last piece of the cable or it 's even there and coiled up in the you know the bottom drawer of the anesthesia machine that no one opens because it 's full of spare parts and nobody knows what they are um There actually may be some quantitative monitoring that was purchased as part of your 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 monitoring system and it just sort of never got rolled out. Actually, that that's happened in a couple facilities. I've had an opportunity to to work with that they no one knew they actually had the monitors and, and they were already incorporated. So, you know, as silly as it sounds, go go open that bottom drawer. Ask yeah. ask someone from Biomed. Hey, is this just a switch we need to flip? Because it could could actually be there for you and you just you just don't know because no one's ever you know no one's ever used it. Yeah. Great, great point. Great
0: suggestion. There's, um, yeah, I kind of group these monitors into two categories. There's like the standalone handheld one that you can carry with you everywhere, yep. um, take it to PACU, take it to ICU, and you'll need to get some cords to integrate into your electronic medical record. Most of them have that. But then there's the modular one, which is what you're talking about, Drew, that you can click in. Um, that's We we have uh, both the standalone and the, the modular one that we'll click in and uh it when it's integrated like this I, I see greater utilization of it because it um doesn't take up space on an iv pole uh it's uh really just becomes part of our anesthesia machine and uh it, it's just integrated a lot more seamlessly uh in that in that setting as well and so yeah. um yeah, i would look at your your what kind of specific anesthesia machine you have and your workstation and um, start with that manufacturer and see if they have, uh, monitoring available for that. That's a great place to start. Like you had yeah. mentioned, maybe you got one laying around. That'd be cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you do
1: There was a facility that had both had, had a couple of the, of the freestanding portable ones and then, yeah. and some that were modular and, and just didn't know that they didn't know they had them. No one had really looked and asked. And, yeah. um, yeah. So interesting.
0: I know when I came on staff, I found, uh, and had to dust off three top watches um uh in oh, our wow. group which are not currently manufactured anymore. But you know, when you go and look at the literature the top watch is talked about all the time. It was one of it's one of the most studied acceleromyography based uh, uh objective monitoring. Yeah. So Drew, we've talked a lot about some of the important literature that's out there and in, in these these ASA guidelines, but I, I wanna try to pick your brain about important clinical scenarios that you may have encountered in your practice in which Neuromuscular blockade management played a key role in in
1: enhancing patient safety. Do you have an anecdote or anything like that? Yeah, actually, not not that uh, not that long ago, we had a patient who was um, undergoing a laparoscopic had a col- was having some colorectal surgery, laparoscopic uh, procedure. And it was it was a procedure where the the surgeon and was sort of on the fence as to whether this patient should stay overnight or actually was a, a decent candidate to be discharged later in the day. And uh, because of some family situations, this patient was really really interested in trying to get home um, the, the day of surgery. And so. Uh, we we talked about it on the front end. Of course, didn't give any guarantees to the patient, but we did everything we could to try to to maximize um, his opportunity to to be discharged that day. Surgery went well. I will say that appropriate neuromuscular uh, management intraoperatively, talking with the surgeon, understanding what his his needs and desires were, facilitated what I think was was a really successful surgery. The patient was deeply. Uh, uh, blocked intraoperatively, uh, to facilitate surgical exposure and laparoscopic techniques. And then, uh, at the, at the end, we, we made, um, clear decisions around antagonism of that block and the timing of the antagonism of that block. And, uh, the patient was, was appropriately antagonized, was, um, extubated, was sent to the recovery room, uh, ultimately was able to participate fully in sort of the the ERAS uh, requirements of uh, PO intake and early ambulation, pain control, et cetera, and and ended up being discharged. It, it's important that all of our patients are appropriately reversed from their neuromuscular you know blockade, but but in particular this patient who was going to be going home in a in a non-monitored situation with non-healthcare provider family members. Um, th- this patient is is a high risk kind of a kind of an individual, abdominal surgery. Um, you know, we, we know that this patient has the risk of, you know, aspiration and and laryngeal and pharyngeal uh weakness that could lead to all kinds of of kind of bad uh fulminant sequelae. I think it's important also though to recognize that that sometimes these patients just have a little bit of extra blockade, a little bit of residual that maybe is not clinically in your face apparent, but boy does it slow down the process in the recovery room. Maybe they're just not oxygenating quite as well as you'd like. They're not able to fully participate in their recovery, whether it's you know the pulmonary toileting or in the case of ERAS, early ambulation, etc. And so when you think about those pharmacoeconomic models, you know, how long does it how long does an extra 20, 30, 45 minutes in the PACU cost, not just physical time with the patient, but sort of from the throughput. Perspective. I, I also want to point out. I, you know, I said earlier we don't have quantitative monitoring in our facility, and so this patient laparoscopically, uh, the position was with the arms tucked, and I think it's important to call out that um, you know best practice tells us we we would be uh, not using the face, not using the eye, um, the oculi or the the eye muscles um, in order to monitor our patients. We were using. Because we didn't have access to the arms during the case, but it's important. In your if you're if you're in that situation, uh, at the end of the case, the drapes come off, the arms get untucked and come out, and you've got to move that neuromuscular uh, monitor to the arm because we know those eye muscles uh, overestimate uh, recovery, and so we we really need to be be clear that we are um, monitoring appropriately given the limitations of the monitors we have. So, um, just a kind of a a caveat to put in there that we we really do need to to think about um, monitoring on the arm if we can. If you can't because it's not accessible, move in that that monitor.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more about, you know, getting the monitor, getting the peripheral nerve stimulator from the face to the hand. We know that um, recovery at the face occurs well before recovery yeah. at the hand. We've, we've set the threshold at recovery at the hand as it's one of the last muscles to recover. That way we can feel um, certain that if the hands recovered, the rest of the body and the muscles that we care about uh, has, has recovered as well. And so that step's real important. There's great literature that re- that, con- that checking the level of blockade at the face overestimates the degree of recovery um, and so I, I commend you on taking those steps and having a great patient outcome. And you know, despite you, you maybe having one arm tied behind your back without having quantitative monitoring available, um, you're, you're doing the best with the the situation that you have currently. And I think about a, an earlier comment that you made about you know anesthesia has gotten is very safe, and we are trying to make incremental small safe, patient safety enhancements that may not be, you know, overtly obvious to you each time, you know, when we start thinking about leaving patients with residual weakness, the ASA 1 patient, you know, the 22-year-old ASA 1, if you left them with a low degree of residual weakness, it is very unlikely that they're going to go on to have a complication. Not every patient that has residual weakness goes on to have a complication and, and that's probably one of been one of the drivers for the anesthesia community being slow to adopt uh, some of the best practices because so many times, you know, we we follow our patients while they're in PACU, maybe post-op day one if they're in the ICU, but a lot of times we don't have this long-term follow-up. And so some of these complications that are associated with neuromuscular blockade not only don't happen to every single patient, but they can take several days for a pneumonia to pop up from it. Um, unfortunately, um, and so when I start thinking about specific clinical scenarios that I want to um, really emphasize optimal neuromuscular blockade management, I think of the opposite end of that ASA one twenty-something year old patient, and think about the elderly patient who does not have a lot of physiologic reserve who. You know, a little bit of hypoxia could be the difference in them getting discharged or getting admitted or heading to a regular monitored floor room or heading to the ICU. And so, certainly, the elderly is a patient population that warrants particular particular care. Uh, I do a lot of thoracic cases as well, and so the pulmonary cripple, a patient with you know tenuous COPD who comes in on home oxygen um who will not do well with a little bit of uh, hypoxia or hypercarbia from being residual weak. I want to make sure that the things that I can control, the level of blockade, restoring neuromuscular function is something that I've definitely uh, uh taken care of and adequately addressed because they I, we really can't tolerate, that patient really can't tolerate having anything not in their favor, particularly something that I can control like neuromuscular blockade. And then the other group I think about a lot is, is the obese patient. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of literature about, you know, should we be using real world body weight, like actual body weight or ideal body weight, ideal body weight with some scalar component. You add a little bit to try to correct for what the different um, a different weight could be. And I, my take on how to dose, you know, reversal agent or neuromuscular blocking agents in that obese patient is. I feel so much more comfortable when I have a monitor to try to help guide and steer me to in an appropriate direction. I would feel comfortable using deviating from manufacturer recommendations and perhaps using a smaller dose, uh, a dose smaller than total body weight for a reversal agent. If I knew if I had an objective monitor that was working well for me during that time and I could give it and then measure the response before extubating that patient. Again, these patients often have central sleep apnea and a um, little bit of uh, pharyngeal dysfunction, a little bit of uh, upper airway obstruction. obstruction could be the difference between them um, getting discharged or, or getting admitted or even at the most extreme end having to get reintubated in the recovery room from respiratory distress. And so I'm always vigilant about those uh, uh, that group of patients. CME programs always include SMART goals to help you translate information into action. SMART stands for specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and timely. Our SMART goals for this program are we hope that you can implement strategies from the 2023 ASA practice guidelines for monitoring and antagonism of neuromuscular blockade. We also hope that that we've demonstrated the utility in using quantitative monitoring in place of qualitative monitoring with a peripheral nerve stimulator or a clinical assessment, which utilizes physical exam techniques, as optimal strategies to hopefully avoid residual neuromuscular blockade and their associated complications. This podcast is part of a three-part series. In Episode 1, we talk about improving patient outcomes with quantitative train-of-4 monitoring. In Episode 3, we talk about best practices in the pharmacologic reversal of neuromuscular blockade. All these podcasts are available plus a wide variety of other educational activities and resources online at CME Outfitters Virtual Education Hub. To receive continuing education credit for this activity, participants must complete the post-test and evaluation online. I want to thank Dr. Drew Riddle for his outstanding discussion and expertise on this topic today. Um, I appreciate you sharing your clinical insight with us uh, as well and, and some of your, your uh impressions on the 2023 ASA guidelines. And I want to thank our listeners for being here today as well.